Today on Clear Approach, some interesting medical news for flying. And I go over everything you need to know about aviation, sun exposure, and skin cancer. All this and more coming up on the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast, your home for aerospace medicine that matters. Greetings, everyone. This is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, coming to you, as always, from the Mayo Clinic in a very green and damp Rochester, Minnesota. Why damp and green? Well, we are just recovering from being walloped by a heck of a thunderstorm this past weekend. In fact, it was so bad, I got to spend about a good 30 minutes shoved into a storm shelter Uh, with my four kids, my wife, and two pets, uh, none of who were pleased to be in that cramped space for that long. But fortunately, that turned out to be uh, the worst of my problems. Uh, We emerged unscathed. But I can't say uh, the same thing for a lot of folks around town here. We didn't actually have a tornado in town, but there was plenty of uh, wind and lightning. A lot of trees were struck by lightning, caught on fire, fell on power lines, and some folks are Only now, just getting their power back some 48 hours later. And unfortunately, it looks like folks out east of us weren't so lucky either. Say, like folks camping under the wing of a plane at Oshkosh. There are plenty of pics of uh, some of the infrastructure, like the booths and such, being turned over. And according to avweb.com, some aircraft were also damaged, unfortunately, including a very rare Pheasant H-10 biplane owned by the EAA Museum. The plane had been secured, uh, tied down pretty well, but it was no match for the wind and unfortunately was flipped over onto a tree. Fortunately, I haven't heard about any injuries associated with the weather. Hopefully, everyone out there will be able to recover quickly and enjoy the rest of their week. And that's a good segue to uh, the most important part of the show, which is, of course, my flying activities. As luck would have it, I was actually scheduled to fly right when the storm came through. So obviously uh, that didn't happen, but I am scheduled to fly later on this week. So crossing my fingers that Mother Nature cooperates then. Speaking of Oshkosh, I had actually hoped to go out there. Um, Believe it or not, I've never actually been to Oshkosh, so I'm dying to do that. Especially since now I, uh, I live in the Midwest. But alas, someone had to stay here and answer emails from pilots and do physicals and do other really, really important things, like be a podcaster. Yeah, I blame you all. All right, for today's episode, I want to include um, a few tidbits of medical news that I think pilots will find interesting. This actually has been a long time coming. Ever since I started the podcast, I thought I would have some sort of medical news segment. But believe it or not, there's just not a lot of medical news out there that's relevant for pilots. But here we are. Finally, it just took about two years. All right, first up, some news involving a pilot and drug testing. This is from shrm.org, a site for human resources. DC Circuit reinstates two-year ban for pilot who left drug test early. As you may remember, in the last episode, when we talked about CBD, 
I mentioned that I am a MRO or a medical review officer. And basically, that's a fancy term for the poor guy that gets to examine all of the not normal drug screens that people have done before they get a job. So this story is kind of really right up my alley. In August of 2020, a very experienced uh, pilot applied for a job with Private Jets. That's the name of the company, not talking about just aircraft in general. Like many of us have had to do, as part of the hiring process, the applicant had to go through a urine drug screen. Unfortunately, when the pilot went to the testing center, he had some problems. He couldn't produce the required amount of urine for the specimen collection. That was 45 milliliters. After that, the pilot then left the drug test center. And because of that, the testing center notified private jets that the pilot had refused the urine drug test. Private jets then notified the FAA. Then, well, you guessed it, the FAA then revoked the pilot's airline transport pilot certificate and his airman medical certificate. Now, you may be wondering, how can a person's inability to produce enough urine be equal to a refusal to test? Well, this determination makes more sense when you think of urine drug testing as a beast of a regulated process. It makes getting a new type rating seem like child's play. So first up, if someone cannot produce enough urine during the initial donation of a urine specimen, that's when something called the shy bladder process starts. And again, this is highly regulated, but in a nutshell, during the shy bladder process, the urine donor has to remain on site, actually in view of the collector for a maximum amount of time, usually about three hours. During that time period, the donor cannot leave and they can only take in a certain amount of water in order to produce a urine specimen. The reason being that you don't want people drinking like two liters of water at that point to try to dilute their urine so that nothing shows up. If the donor, aka pilot in this scenario, does anything that violates these rules, well, it's a refusal to test. So if you leave the test site despite the warnings of the collector, that's a refusal. If you try to drink 20 gallons of water, that's a refusal. If you try to hide behind a couch, that's a refusal. All of this may seem really, really silly, but you would be horrified about some of the things that I have come across in urine drug testing for employment. Anywho, the pilot then took this to court, first trying to appeal the decision with the administrative law judge at the NTSB. There was some argument back and forth whether or not the collection site had properly informed the pilot, but in the end, the NTSB agreed with the FAA, although they did reduce the pilot's uh, suspension down to 180 days. However, this went on to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and there they found that the reduction was not necessary and the pilot's suspension was put back up to two years. Moral of the story here, if you have to do a urine drug screen in the future, do it like an instrument approach. Follow the rules all the way through, even if there's a go-around. All right, the next piece of news comes from the Washington Post. More than reading glasses, new options for old eyes. This story, published on July 17th, 2022, gives some treatment options for presbyopia, with the most recent development being eye drops. That's right, eye drops. In 2021, the FDA approved the first drops that can be used to improve vision for folks who have presbyopia. 
Okay, real quickly before I go on further, what is presbyopia? Presbyopia is the inability to focus on things that are close to you. And this is primarily due to age-related changes. You can contrast that with myopia, which is being nearsighted, and hyperopia, which is being farsighted. Those conditions are actually not associated with age and are more related to the anatomy of the eye. Now, the drops are actually a very well-known drug called pilocarpine. The way this drug works, it basically constricts the pupil, which lets less light into the eye. By doing this, uh, essentially filtering out unnecessary light, it can actually help improve near vision. The marketing name for this product is called Vuity, and it was actually FDA approved back in the fall of 2021, and for some reason now it's starting to make more headlines this summer. Based on what was seen in research, it's estimated that these drops can help with near vision for 6 to 10 hours. There are some limitations, however. This seems to primarily work for folks who only have a very mild deficit with their near vision. And unfortunately, there can be also some side effects, such as headaches and troubles with low light conditions. And of course, with those side effects, you guessed it, you cannot use VOD eye drops for eye correction while flying. In fact, the AME guys has its own special section for that drug, which basically just says, nope. All right, well, that's the news for today. Hopefully, I'll have some more news for you in 2025. Next up, skin cancer and pilots. All right, I know what you're all thinking right now. Why in the world are we talking about skin cancer? The reason is because from what we see in research, air crew members have a higher risk of skin cancers. This is especially true for people who work for Sun Country. Just kidding, that is a little airline name joke. But really, there is a higher risk. For example, a study of Air Force officers who served between 1970 and 2004 found that male aviators had a greater odd of developing melanoma when compared to the general population and other Air Force officers. The same thing was found when examining all the astronauts from April 1959 and December 2017. So there you have it. We have established that this is an important subject for folks in aviation. And many of you may think that this totally makes a lot of sense. After all, when we fly, we are obviously higher, that much closer to the sun and exposed to higher cosmic radiation. Well, actually, that's where things get more nebulous. Back in 2017, there was a study performed where researchers measured UVA, B, and C radiation on 14 different flights. And despite our assumptions, the study found that neither UVA or B radiation was detected in the aircraft cabins. Interestingly, there was some UVA radiation found in cockpits, but only for Boeing aircraft not Airbus. Maybe it's because there is a joystick versus a yoke, who knows. But fear not, the amount of UVA radiation found was far lower than what was seen on ground level, meaning that the aircraft windows and visors do a good job of blocking radiation. Similar results were found in a 2020 study of 322 Airbus flights, where it was found that the exposure to sun during a flight was well below the typical weekend exposure for UK office workers. So that begs the question, 
Why do air crew members have a higher risk of skin cancer? Honestly, right now, the best answer is, who knows? Maybe it's time spent on the tar back. Maybe it's doing the walk-arounds that we do. Maybe it's pilot sunny disposition. Maybe it's the onboard lavatory. In any case, the most important part is that we see increased risk. And aviators need to make sun protection an active process. Now, I'm not going to be your parents and review everything that causes skin cancer and the basics of sun exposure. You'll have Google. But three tips I do want to quickly highlight. Number one, you can get burned through your clothes. Yes, covering up is a start, but not all clothes is created equal. And also for all you swimmers out there, a wet shirt is not effective as a dry one. Number two, you have to reapply sunscreen. It's not just a one and done deal for the rest of the day. And finally, number three, sunscreen can expire. So don't be using that sunscreen you found under your car seat that was last used during spring break 89. In fact, don't use anything that you randomly find underneath your car seat. All right, so let's fast forward. What happens if you are a pilot and unfortunately you develop skin cancer? What do you do? Well, like always in aerospace medicine, it depends. If you have a suspicious skin lesion, what most likely will happen first is you will get a biopsy done by your local medical provider, your primary care provider, or dermatologist. And then the lab will analyze it and give you results. If it turns out to be melanoma, this is a case where size matters. First, if you are lucky enough to catch melanoma early and its depth is less than 0.75 millimeters on biopsy, or you have a diagnosis of melanoma in situ, then as long as all of the reports are good and the biopsy shows that you got all of the lesion, you could actually get a medical certificate without any further review by the FAA. Anything more than that, unfortunately, is going to require more information and a special issuance. How much information you need to submit really depends on how advanced things are. If there's a single lesion, you may just need some operative reports and favorable reports from the dermatologist. If there is unfortunate metastatic spread of melanoma, that's going to require at least some very advanced imaging. Takeaway point is this, no matter whoever you are, taking care of your skin is important. And this is especially true if you are a pilot or an air crew member. So pretend you're at the beach every time you're out. Keep that sunscreen handy so you can keep on having fun in the sun. Well, that's the show for today. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback for us or have a story that you might want to share or a question that you want to get posed, you can actually reach us now through our brand new email address. It's clearapproach at mayo.edu. As always, remember that this podcast is an offshoot of our Mayo Clinic Clear Approach teleconsulting service. If you have a question about your health and how it may affect your flying, you can actually go online and go to clearapproach.mailclinic.org and there you can sign up for an account and for a small fee, send our team of aviation medical examiners your question. And in about 24 to 48 hours, we'll get back to you with some advice. Until next time, this is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, wishing you great flying 
and even better health. 